From 1969 to 1972, The Brady Bunch was a hit show on television. It even became more popular in syndication over the years to come so that multiple generations enjoyed the program. Now you remember there were the six Brady kids, right? The, the three blonde-haired girls and the three black-haired boys and the father uh, had black hair and the mother had blonde hair. Well, originally, the kids were select, selected first before the adults and so they had two sets of kids. There were two sets of child actors that were chosen. Uh, one set we know, uh, blonde-haired girls, black-haired boys. But there was also a set of black-haired boys and blonde, excuse me, black-headed girls and uh, blonde-headed boys, two separate sets, and the, the casting officials didn't decide what to do until they'd hired the main actors to be the parents. And so when Robert Reed was hired to be Mike Brady, his dark hair meant they needed the dark-haired guys. And when Florence Henderson was hired to be the mother, his blonde hair meant they needed the blonde-haired girls. And that's the, the, the actors that have grown to be adults now that we know and love as the Brady Bunch. Now, that means there were six kids out there who were almost the Brady Bunch. I don't know if they go, oh, man, or if they go, whew, what I've heard of child stars, whew. I'm not sure which way it goes. But the final decision, I'm sure they were all good actors, but the decision came down to how they looked on the outside. It's very normal for us as human beings to make judgments about people based on how they look on the outside, the achievements they've made, what we can see. Today we're going to begin a series that will take us all the way through the summer on the life of David a great character in Scripture. No other character in Scripture has more Scripture dedicated to them than David, other than Jesus himself. There are 66 chapters in the Old Testament that cover the life of David. There are 53 New Testament references to David. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament describe him as a man after God's own heart, someone whose heart is aimed at the heart of God, getting to know God and follow God and obey God and serve God. He wrote 73 of the Psalms. He is a major character of Scripture, and God allows us in the story of David that we're going to study together to see the high points and the low points, to see the times of great success and the times of failure, to see the times he's a blessing to others, the times of his sin, the times when he's afraid, when he has hopes and dreams. We get to see it all in his journey and how David's heart was aimed at the heart of God. Today, we're specifically going to focus in on what really becomes the theme of the whole series. It's all about the heart. If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Kings, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to pick up with the first mention of David in Scripture. This is about a thousand years before Jesus walked on planet Earth. Israel already had one king, his name was Saul. God had allowed the nation of Israel to pick a king for themselves, like the other nations, even though he warned them that could be dangerous. They looked among themselves, they saw this tall, powerful, head and shoulders above anybody else, handsome guy named Saul, and they said, we want him to be the king because he looks the part so well. And so Saul becomes king. Samuel the priest anoints him as king under God's direction as the people chose him. There were some early successes in his life, but quickly his heart turned away from the Lord and became known for anger and jealousy. 
and a vindictive spirit. He became one who disobeyed God in chapters 13, 14, and 15. In each chapter, there's a public disobedience against God. So much so that we come to the end of chapter 15, Saul is king, and we read this statement about Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 35, the last phrase of that chapter, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What a sad statement. A couple of decades later, Saul himself would look back at his life and say, I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. That's why Samuel, the priest, had to look at Saul in 1 Samuel 13 and say to him, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. We'll discover in chapter 16, that was in a young shepherd boy named David. Josephus tells us, the ancient historian from the time of Christ, says that all of the Jewish scholars of the day believed that David was 10 years old when he was anointed to be the king, the replacement of Saul. It would take almost two decades before he would replace Saul as the king over all 12 tribes of Israel. Scholars say he could have been around 10, at the most 14 or 15 when he was anointed to be king. We're going to see in this passage how important it is for us to know that God looks at the heart and that we need to pursue God so we can see one another with the same eyes that God has. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Get over it already. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. Oil was a signifier of the calling of God on someone's life. And so get ready, you're gonna anoint a new king. Be on your way, I am sending you to Jesse. Now Jesse is a man who is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, the great story of redemption, the little book of Ruth. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Now as soon as you read Bethlehem, you start thinking the manger at the base of a Christmas tree, you start thinking silent night. We have a quaint picture of this little town, the shepherd town, the Judean hills, and there's nothing wrong with some of that quaint imagery that we have, except at this time, most of the references to Bethlehem in the Bible have been, and he passed by Bethlehem on his way to such and such. It's just a wayside town that had no main importance. It didn't have the significance you and I give to it. And so this is seeming, seemingly odd to Samuel. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. If I get some oil together and I go into Bethlehem saying, I'm here to anoint the next king, I'm a dead man. And God says, just do your job. <laughs> go there, offer a sacrifice like you do when you go into a town. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord. I invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. I'm going to identify the next king of Israel. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. When they met him, they asked, do you come in peace? Now this is important because if you go back to chapter 15, God had commanded King Saul to destroy the Amalekites and kill their king, King Agag, because there were such wicked, evil people trying to destroy the nation of Israel. And Saul hadn't done it, and so God told Samuel, you kill Agag the king and cut him up in little pieces. So word has come to Bethlehem what the kindly priest Samuel has done, and they hope that he's, he's got all the Agag out of him, if you will, his angst and anger, because last they heard he was chopping up a guy. 
So he arrives and they say, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, set aside, purify yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So they all gather. Here they are, Jesse and his sons. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He looks at him. It's probably like Saul, head and shoulders above others. Most scholars believe that the three oldest sons are named because they probably already had been to war with Saul and his armies in the preceding chapters. And so these are guys who look experienced. They're fully of age. they got full beards. They are strong, strapping young men. And he sees Eliab the oldest. After all, it's got to be the oldest, right? He's going to be the next king. If it's not the, since Saul's family has been told that they're not going to hold on to the throne, it's going to go to someone who's got a heart after God's. So he says, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. Verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. You're looking at the outside. Then here's a key verse to the whole life of David. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. We know from biblical literature that Jesse had eight sons and two daughters. The first three passed by, and then it says here, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, I told you there are eight, but now seven have passed by. The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Maybe the Lord's made a mistake here, but do you have one more? I mean, something's going on here. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's out on the hill tending sheep. Now this tells us this family was not a wealthy family. In a wealthier family, they would have had hired servants who'd be caring for the sheep. But in the culture of that day, in a family this size, the youngest would be like the family servant. That was what his role was to be. He'd serve the family and their needs, and what they need him to do is take care of their livelihood, the sheep. He's out in the fields with the sheep. That's what he does. And he's young. He may be between 10 and 14 years of age. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down till he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and a fine appearance. So on the outside, they saw, okay. But now the difference here is Eliab is kind of described with words in Hebrew that mean handsome. It's a strapping, strong guy. The description of David is, he's cute. (laughs) It's the distinction and handsome features. The Lord said, rise, anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Well, that's a phrase. The one they thought was the servant of the family has now been anointed to be the next king. We know it causes a little rub in what we'll see in 1 Samuel 17 next week between David and his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went home to Ramah. The Spirit of the Lord came on David. Now in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, would come and go on people as God empowered them. That changes in the New Testament on this day that is celebrated in the church calendar as Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost 
filled the believers, and from that point forward, those who came to faith in Christ received the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 1 describes and Galatians describes, as the down payment, the guarantee that we are God's. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go from believers. We have the permanent dwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, inside of us. But David is described as one the Holy Spirit came on and did not leave him and empowers him. Well, then we get this kind of meanwhile, back with King Saul, he's getting angrier and bitter and depressed, and the Lord's spirit is withdrawn from him, and the Lord allows and sends a demonic spirit that torments Saul, and he's all disturbed, he's all anxious, he's all depressed, he's frustrated, angry, cantankerous, and his servants say, we gotta find somebody who plays some music, and you know, music can can minister to our hearts. When I'm discouraged or frustrated or frightened or I'm dealing with things in life, I often go to certain playlists I've designed in Spotify so that I can just enjoy music that will minister to my heart. Music is a great gift. They say, let's find somebody like that. Verse 18, one of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man. Again, that's kind of, he's cute. But notice what this guy says, and the Lord is with him. They know the Lord has left Saul. He's disturbed by this demonic spirit. So Saul sends for David in verse 19. It's interesting, in verse 19, when Saul sends for him, he says, send me your son who's out there with the sheep. What did David do after he's anointed to be the replacement for Saul? He's anointed to be the next king. He didn't go around Bethlehem saying, I'm the new king, guys. This 12 or 13 year old, I'm the new king. Nope. The anointing is over. He said, is that it? Yep. All right, I'll be out with the sheep. That's where Saul finds him. Verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. He's not only a musician, but he's an armor bearer. And next week we'll see how the armor didn't fit, and David probably knew that all along because he'd been carrying the armor for Saul when Saul would go into battle became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God, that demon that God allowed to come on Saul, would come on Saul, David would take up his lyre, his harp, and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. And here's what we're gonna see in this introductory passage to this young man David who's gonna become the great King David of Israel. It'll be true throughout the entire story of David. Here, here's one of those main themes we talk about. It's all about the heart. Who you are in the inside matters far more to God than how you look on the outside. Who you are in your character. When we talk about our heart, we're talking about not just our seat of emotions, but where we think and dream and plan. It's, it's the center, it's the essence, the soul, the spirit, the real us, where there is emotion and thinking, where there's volition, we can act and plan and make decisions. It's who we really are. And who you are on the inside matters far more to God than how you look on the outside. God expects you to invest more time and energy in cultivating your heart than perfecting your appearance. Looks like most of you brushed your hair this morning. Most of you probably brushed your teeth. Some of you put on makeup, some of you shaved. We get in front of the mirror every day and don't stop doing that, but how much time are you spending on the cultivation of your heart before God? Aiming your heart toward God's heart, like David did. First Kings 
8.3, the statement is made about the Lord. For you alone know every human heart. I don't know what's in your heart, what you're thinking, what your fears are, your dreams are, the guilt and shame you might carry. You don't know what's in my heart, but there is one who knows every heart in this room and every heart that's joined us on this broadcast. It's God. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range through the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, the essence of your being, from, for everything you do flows from it. Your words, your actions, your relationships, your responses, your attitude, all comes from the heart. Guard your heart. How much time do you spend in front of a mirror? How much time do you spend on the seven steps of skin treatment to make your skin smooth and shiny and young and fresh? When I moved here, I read an interesting statistic that in the couple of zip codes right here in Westlake Village, that there are more plastic surgeons per capita than anywhere else in the state of California. <laughs> now, I'm not slamming that. There may be an appropriate place for that, but... We've gotten so appearance-driven and who our, our, our accomplishments are, and we're in an area where, where we often are our own brand because of our careers and, and how we appear and the accomplishments we have. The influence and the affluence is a part of what we trade, is a part of our, our well-being. And yet it can be very dangerous because we can spend a lot of energy on how we appear to others and forget to cultivate our hearts before God. Before you can even begin to cultivate your heart before God, though, you have to have a heart that is alive to him. We're all born with hearts that are dead before God spiritually because of our sin. Jesus went to the cross, was buried in a grave, and conquered the grave in his resurrection so that as we put our faith in him and what he has done to pay for our sins and to provide us forgiveness, we put our faith in Jesus, then that dead heart is made alive by God himself. And then we can begin to cultivate that heart and develop a character that begins to flow. And as we, we grow more and more from the inside out, the Spirit of God changes us to make us more like Jesus. But we have to have a heart that is alive. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you don't have a heart that is alive unto God. But he can make it alive today. Put your faith in Jesus. If I can have a conversation with you about that, I'll be available in the lobby. Our care and prayer team comes down front after every service. They're there to pray over any need, but if you want to have a conversation about what it means to have a heart that is alive unto God through faith, then come and talk to them. If you're joining us online, even those in the room who just say, I gotta, I gotta express this right now that I need that living heart, I'm putting my faith in Jesus, then you can text the name Jesus to the number 58568. The number below me on the screen, just take the name Jesus, put it in the body and send it to that number and our team will respond. We wanna make sure you have a heart that is alive unto God because that's where meaning and satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment are found in life. And the more our hearts are cultivated to be more like Jesus' own heart and we pursue the very heart of God, the more others see Christ in us and the more satisfied we are in life. Who you are on the inside matters far more to God than how you look on the outside. Where are you spending your energy and your time? You see, more often than not, God looks at the inward, not the outward. That's what he said in verse seven. 
to Samuel. You're looking at Eliab, you're deciding he looks the part, but I'm telling you, I look at the heart, and he doesn't have the heart, but I have one of Jesse's sons who does have the heart. Secondly, more often than not, God looks for the faithful, not the conventional. You see, the conventional thing here is what Samuel went for. The oldest son, Eliab, he looked apart. This has got to be the guy. This has to be the Lord's anointed. That was conventional wisdom. The oldest in the family. If it's not going to go to the king's family, it's probably going to be the oldest in some other family. Somebody maybe who's already gone to war. Somebody who's got some experience. That's the conventional idea. But God says, no, 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 no. When Samuel says, uh, Jesse, do you have any more kids? Uh, yeah, there's the one kid. He's out there tending the sheep. He was being faithful. He wasn't the conventional choice, but he was faithful. Are you being faithful to God in your walk with him and serving him and living for him? More often than not, God looks for the faithful, not the conventional. Thirdly, more often than not, God looks at the story ahead, not the story behind. Samuel saw Eliab there in verse 6 and thought, surely the Lord's anointing is, anointed is standing before the Lord. This has got to be the guy. I mean, this guy is the oldest. He's got a longer story. As best we understand, he probably had already been to war. He's got the right story leading up to this moment. He's the right guy. Now, I think our stories do matter in our past. I know I've expressed some of my story of growing up that, that shaped me. You see, the stories of our past shape us, but they don't define us. Satan will try to define you by your past. And God says, your story isn't done. I have a story ahead that I'm still writing. Eliab, Eliab had a story. David didn't really have much of a story. But God often, more often than not, looks at the story ahead, not the story behind. Max Lucado says, God's view of us is infused with grace, love, and absolute understanding. He sees not just who we are, but who we can be. Maybe you feel defeated or you feel shackled because of stuff in your past, your own sin, maybe the brokenness of your life, maybe how someone has hurt you. Don't let that define you. It can shape what God's going to do with you, but the story ahead in God's eyes is more important than the story that is behind. More often than not, God looks for the weak, not the strong. All three Eliab, Abinadab, Shema, they come in, they look the part, maybe the other four look the part, and when Jesse says, yeah, I've got one more, this is, this is what he says about that one more, verse 11, well, there still is the youngest, he's out with the sheep. The word youngest there is not just a chronological word in Hebrew, it's the idea, there's still the weakling out there with the sheep. <laughs> the scrawny, puny guy is still out there. You know what's true about our God? He promises us in 2 Corinthians that in our weakness, our lowest points, when we feel the most empty, that he infuses us in those moments with his strength and his power. He says, in your weakness, my power is made perfect. I mean, people think, I can't serve God. I can't be used by him. I can't share my faith with others. I can't join in prayer. I can't serve in this way. And it's often because... They think they are weak. They don't have the seminary training, all the experience, all the... God uses those others think are weaklings to do mighty things to bring him glory and for the good of others. 
Sixth and finally, more often than not, God looks for the nobodies, not the somebodies. God looks for the nobodies, not the somebodies. We live in an area where there are a lot of somebodies. Now, God uses somebodies throughout the scripture. He often uses people who are already kings and people who are already prophets, people of prominence, people who have influence. He does do that. But more often than not, he's looking for somebody who is a nobody to do something great for him. And again, you might feel marginalized, overlooked, even here at Calvary, thinking nobody notices what I can do. I have some opportunities that I could take, but nobody notices me. Be aware that God looks for the nobodies, not the somebodies. In verse 12, when they call him in, it says, he was glowing with health, and his appearance was handsome. And Samuel says, rise up and anoint him. And the rest of them went, him? Really? He's the nobody shepherd from the hill. Eliab and Abinadab and Ramah are sitting there going, wait, it should be me. I'm the somebody here. I'm the warrior. I've... God uses nobodies oftentimes more than he uses somebodies. See, it's not about who we are and our appearance or accomplishments. It's about our heart's posture toward God. When Leslie and I had been married for about a year, I was invited to speak at a camp. It was a camp that had a couple hundred teenagers. And the way it had been scheduled, they knew I was going to arrive late just because of travel. And so we arrived about three hours after the registration and everything, and they were already having dinner in the dining hall. And so uh, they uh, just told us, come right to the dining hall, have dinner, and then we'll go from there, get you all settled in. So we came in, and there were the students at the tables already eating and counselors with them. And then there was this head table with the people who were in charge. They were in control of everything, and they were in charge. And I started to pass by that. I only knew one guy, the guy who had invited me to speak. He'd heard me before and met him and knew him. And as I'm passing by the table to go toward the food, I hear someone whisper, that's our speaker? And someone else, yes, that's, that's our speaker. Now, I was 6'2 and weighed 140 pounds. I'm 6'2, and I weigh a little more than that now. Um, I'd, had, I'd gotten a pretty bad haircut, so my hair was really, really, really short, I probably looked like I was 10 or 11 years old. And when the one guy says at the head table, is that our speaker? Yeah, I think it is. Then I heard the first guy whisper back, don't worry, next year I'll get a better speaker. <laughs> they never heard me speak at all. They were looking at the appearance and God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. So what do we do to cultivate our hearts? I think there's a pattern that we're going to see over the next three months as we study the life of David each weekend in our worship together and in our, in our diving into God's word together. Here are five critical steps to cultivating a healthy heart. Number one, spend time with God daily. Spend time with God daily. Open the Bible. Pray. Hang out with God's people. How much time do you spend brushing your teeth, shaving, putting on your makeup, making sure the clothes are all right, ironing, getting everything so your appearance looks good every day. Compare that amount of time to how much time you spend daily with the Lord. If you want to cultivate a healthy heart, a heart aimed at the heart of God, spend time with God daily. Secondly, be faithful where you are now. Whatever way you're serving, if you're serving your neighbor, your relatives, you're doing something that, that is in service to them for the uh, glory of God and for their good, be faithful now. Can I tell you about someone who's been wonderfully faithful here at Calvary? We have a staff member that we celebrated her retirement this last Monday. Carolyn Gregware has worked at Calvary 
as an executive administrative assistant since 1981. We had a party on Monday to celebrate her 42 years of service to this church. Many of you know her. Her kids grew up here. She's worshipped here. She and Dave put their house up for sale uh, and it was sold in just a matter of a couple days and they thought they might not be moving to Arizona to retire near their daughter until later in the summer or the fall and all of a sudden things sped up and she let us know that she was going to be stepping back and retiring and so we had this great celebration. She's pictured in the picture with Curtis Johnson who served as our executive pastor for a number of years and then Jason who serves, Jason McMaster who serves as our executive pastor now and she's worked with every executive pastor that Calvary's ever had, who helps lead the staff and lead the ministry, lead the organization as the executive pastor, and she has served faithfully for 42 years, and I spent some time just interviewing her in front of our staff and some of our pastors, and you could hear her heart just come through. No matter what the question I asked her about those 42 years, it kept coming back that this was for Jesus. She found joy in it. She served where she was now, 42 years a faithful service. If you know her, you can reach out to her. You can even send an email to info at calvarywestlake.org and just address Carolyn. If you don't know her and you want to just encourage her, info at calvarywestlake.org. Send her a thank you for her years of faithful service. We are so grateful for Carolyn and the way she has served. You can drop a note off and we'll get it to her. Uh, they're now packing things and I think they're going to be moving around uh, June 6th and we're excited for them. But this dear lady, this dear co-worker in the ministry with us has been faithful where she has been for that many years and many, many lives have been impacted because of her faithfulness. Yeah. <laughs> Thirdly, seize opportunities to serve others. I'm sure in David's mind, becoming the armor bearer, as we learn in verses 19, 20, 18, 19, and 20, and 21, and, and being the musician playing for us all, these look like the perfect path, but we know it's gonna be a twisted path before he becomes king. It's gonna be almost two decades before he leads all of Israel as king. But it looks like he's on the right path, but, path, but what he does, he just seizes the opportunities to serve that are put before him. I meet people who will say, well, I'm in college now. When I get out of college, I'll serve. Oh, I'm engaged now. Oh, we've only been married a couple years, so we can't yet serve in the church. And then I have people who say, well, I can't, serve and use my gifts in the church to bless others and to reach others because now we've got kids and oh our kids are in college we can't serve now we can't engage right now in ministry and then they become empty nesters and say oh we're now able to travel and we can travel and see our grandkids and so we really don't have time to serve and then they get to be senior adults and they start saying you know what where we are in life we're just not what's your excuse why don't you roll up your sleeves and serve in children's ministries, student ministries, care ministries, our adult ministries, our small groups, our worship, our, our uh, outreach, all the different ways in which you can serve. There are plenty of opportunities. Maybe God is speaking to you and saying, you've been making excuses. Stop making excuses and serve. Seize the opportunity to serve. It helps cultivate your heart and aims your heart toward the heart of God. If God's moving you, to get over those excuses you've been making for why you haven't rolled up your sleeves and served even right here in your local church, then text the word serve to that number 58568. Just put the number in 58568 and just put serve in the body of the text and we'll connect with you and help you find a place to cultivate your heart before God by serving others in his name. Serve to 58568. Fourthly, notice God's hand in your life. 
There's going to be a pattern in David's psalms and in the course of his life. He's going to see God did that. God did that. God did that. God did that. You know, I meet people who all they do is criticize and judge. They sit in a service like this, and when they get in the car, all they do is tear it apart. Why that musician this, or that person was wearing that, or I wish Sean had put that tooth back in somehow. Uh, people, you know, people watch the broadcast and pick apart this, and why didn't they this? Why did the camera go there? Why is he doing that? We pick each other apart on the outside. That is not the godly thing to be critical and judgmental of everything you see going on in church or with people around you. When you're doing all that, you're seeing all the errors and all the human stuff, all the surfacey stuff, and you're missing cultivating a heart of gratitude that says, there's the hand of God. Look what God did. Look what God did. Look what God did. Listen to that message. Listen to that song. Look how he used her. Look how he's using him. We get all caught up in what the person's wearing, how they're talking, what they're doing. We need to be, people like David will see it as a pattern of his life, cultivating a heart toward God that says, look at the hand of God. Fifth, trust God with what happens next. Trust God with what happens next. David's gonna be constantly at points. He has to step out by faith and trust God. Next week, as we talk about David and Goliath, he has to step out, trust God with what happens next. He didn't know what was gonna happen next when that stone left the sling. He just trusted God. That's a pattern that needs to be a part of cultivating a heart toward God. You see, who you are on the inside matters far more to God than how you look on the outside. God expects you to invest more time and energy in cultivating your heart than perfecting your appearance. Spend time with God daily. Be faithful where you are now. Seize opportunities to serve others. Notice God's hand in your life. Be grateful, not critical and judgmental. Trust God with what happens next. Take that step of faith. Do the next right thing and trust him with the outcome. You know what comes from all that? Deep satisfaction, deep joy. On your way out today, you're gonna to be handed a card. On one side looks like this with the, kind of the theme of our visuals for this life of David. And the top, it has that statement, who you are on the inside matters far more to God than who you are, how you look on the outside. And then it has 1 Samuel 16, seven, where God told Samuel, people look at the outward appearance the Lord looks at the heart. And it reminds you about this teaching series. On the back, though, you're going to find a, a post-it note heart. I'm going to ask you when you go home to take that heart off of there. And wherever you prep in the morning, groom, that mirror where you brush your teeth, comb your hair, do your makeup, shave, put this heart on that mirror right where it's always going to get in your way for the next three months. And let's commit to a summer as the body of Calvary Community Church where we're individually going to say, I'm going to work on cultivating my heart to develop a heart aimed at the heart of God like David. So put that in a place that's going to get in your way. You say, well, maybe you're like Brian Howard and your hair's about this short. You don't wear makeup. I hope he brushes his teeth. <laughs> but you don't really spend a lot of time in front of a mirror. Where do you spend some time where this is going to get in the way and when you see this, be reminded, even speak to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, help me to cultivate my heart, to develop a heart that's aimed at your heart, to know you and walk with you and obey you. That I might cultivate what's on the 
inside more than how I look on the outside. How you see me, Lord, not how others see me. These will be handed out on the way out. Slow down, grab one. Use that card to invite someone else to join us for this series on the life of David. So let me ask you simply, does who you are on the inside matter more to you than how you look on the outside? Does who you are on the inside really matter more to you than how you look on the outside? You know, I'd say, I just don't think God can use me. I just don't think God cares. I just show up here to just sort of do my church thing and go on. Please don't disturb my life, Sean. I can't be used by God. You don't know my story. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm facing. You don't know. Well, I do know this. The next time you feel God can't use you, think of some of the people God used in the Bible. Noah was an alcoholic. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was an idolater. Moses had a stuttering problem. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was afraid and arrogant. Samson was a womanizer. Ruth was a pagan. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Solomon was a philanderer. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Job went bankrupt. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman had five broken marriages. Zacchaeus was a swindler. Peter denied Christ. Paul was too religious. And Timothy was too timid. And Lazarus, well, Lazarus was dead. <laughs> and God used all of them. Don't make yourself the exception. Don't make yourself the exception. Let's spend some time this summer working on our hearts, our character, our very being and who we are before God for his glory and the good of others. That's where deep satisfaction, meaning and purpose comes from in life. That's where joy comes from. Rather than investing so much on our accomplishments and our appearances before others. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this great story in scripture. Thank you that you didn't hide David's weaknesses, his shortcomings, his dark moments, his discouragement, his frustrations, his fears, his sins. May we grow and learn from the incredible story of this man who's described, only person described in all of scripture, to be in pursuit of God's very heart. May we learn what that means. May we cultivate our lives on the inside, not just the outside. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.